Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So to Speak, the free speech podcast, brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights and expression. Welcome back to So to Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino, and we're recording this podcast on the heels of the new proposed Title IX regulations being released on June 23rd. As our listeners will recall, because we have discussed Title IX many times on this podcast, FIRE has been involved in debating uh, Title IX issues since the Dear Colleague letter, which is something we'll dive into, I'm sure, during the course of this conversation, which came out in 2011. I believe it was April 4th, 2011. Is that right, Robert? Do you remember? I believe that's right, yeah. Yeah, and then since then, there's been a lot of litigation surrounding Title IX due process concerns, the rights of the accused, the rights of the accuser. Uh, And then during the Trump administration, under Betsy DeVos's leadership, they put through a notice of rulemaking to bolster due process protections in the Title IX context on campus. Those protections went into effect in 2020. And then when the Biden administration came in, they removed those protections or put them on ice, I should say. And just this past week, we're recording this, what, the last week in June, uh, the Biden administration proposed new Title IX rules which are the subject of this conversation to discuss these new rules. I'm joined by my FIRE colleague, Robert Shibley. He is FIRE's executive director and the author of Twisting Title IX, a nationwide expert on the subject. I'm also joined by Casey Johnson, who is a professor at Brooklyn College and a close follower of litigation surrounding Title IX due process issues. He's also the author of a number of books on the subject. And then we have Samantha Harris, who has been on the podcast before. She is a longtime or was a longtime staffer at FIRE before moving to private practice, where she is now a partner at Allen Harris Law. Sam, Casey, Robert, welcome to the show. Thanks for, Thanks having, for having me. All right, Robert, I want to start with you. Um, I just want to get a sense of everyone's perception of what happened last week. What's your big takeaway? Well, I think there's a couple of big takeaways. The first one is that, um, you know, as President Biden had promised, um, actually as part of his campaign promises, uh, they uh, the, the new uh, proposed regulations definitely do water down uh, due process protections uh, for students who are accused uh, by other students for the most part is the part that we're concerned about when it's it's peer sexual harassment. So uh, we're not talking sexual harassment. Um, our main concern isn't sexual harassment that's happening um, among university employees, for instance. Um, so student on student sexual harassment in the higher ed context. Um, I think it's so I guess it's hard to say it's disappointing because it was kind of expected, but it's nevertheless, uh, I, I think, a, a mistake. I think it's it's sad to see it. Uh, we were uh, you know, hoping, but certainly not counting on uh, the the administration to, uh, you know, hold off on doing this or decide not to do it or think better of it. Um, although, you know, again, it, it was sort of baked into the cake uh, once President Biden was elected. So in, in that sense, I mean, it, it is a real, it's going to be a real serious problem, uh, once again, for people on campus. Uh, I think probably the most uh, predictable part of it, though, and and 
arguably one of the worst parts is the uh, free speech uh, implications of once again watering down the standard for peer-on-peer sexual harassment to one that uh, very uh, is so vague and overbroad that it covers a lot of protected speech. And I think we're going to see that uh, activated fairly quickly once, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure how many universities were actually following the standards set forth by the Supreme Court in this case, 1999's case of Davis versus Monroe County Board of Education that protected free speech. Uh, but the new one uh, is definitely going to be misused quickly, um, as we've seen throughout our time at fire where, um, you know, I've been here almost 19 years and sexual harassment codes are, I would say, you know, the, the, the most frequently, maybe not the majority of the time, but the most frequently, uh, misused area of college, uh, policies that become speech codes because they are used to silence protected speech. Well, what's that standard, Robert? It's what severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive is the Davis standard from 1999. And the new standard set forth by the Department of Education is uh, an or standard, right? Severe or pervasive. And it could be subjectively or objectively offensive. Well, I think it's subjectively and objectively, but I mean, the the operative parts um, is that it had, instead of having to be so severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive, uh, that it effectively prevents a student from getting an education. Uh, they change something closer to the employment standard, um, saying that it has to be so severe or pervasive that it limits your ability to get an education. And I'm leaving some details out of there, but I don't think they're material for this discussion. Uh, the difference being that uh, what is pervasive could, uh, you know, is a very low standard um because a lot of things that are annoying, sort of low-grade annoying, may still nevertheless be pervasive and they may limit your enjoyment of some benefit. They may make you want to, uh, less likely to want to join a club or less likely to want to go to a class or you know live in a particular dorm. And so it really opens the door to um, you know, bringing back a lot of um, offense-based harassment findings. And yes, it says it has to be subjectively and objectively um, offensive, but you know, you're really relying on objectively offensive to do a lot of work in that case, if you want to try to keep, you know, low grade offensiveness from becoming it. And you're also dealing with a university milieu where you have students and faculty who are very primed to uh, objectively see things as offensive uh, that actually are parts of everyday speech and political discourse uh, outside of campus. And so, um, I think I think that is going to be a real, real serious collision and a fast collision. And and it has more than um, obviously it has more than free speech implications, too, because what it means is, um, you know, it's going to activate. It's going to bring a lot more people into the system where they then will be, uh, you know, again, air quotes, treated to the lack of due process uh, protections that we're now seeing in the new regulations. I, I want to keep on the subject of the Davis standard. And I want to ask you, Sam. Uh, the ACLU put out a statement agreeing with the regulations in part, disagreeing with them in part. And one of the things that they agreed with uh, was the removal of the Davis standard so that it more closely matched the standard um, in other sort of discrimination cases, uh, like racial discrimination, I, I believe, for example. So I, I was wondering what your thoughts are on the lowering of that standard, how it might match with other standards that are in place for harassment or discrimination. Um, 
and sort of the, the history that's baked in there and why they may or may not be wrong. Well, here's what's interesting. So when the 2020 regulations uh, were announced and um, they adopt, they incorporated the Davis standard, I was at FIRE and I was very excited that the, you know, the Department of Education was going to be requiring schools to respect free speech in its sexual harassment regulations. What we actually saw happen after those regulations went into effect was that schools set up these two track systems. I'm gonna, I was going to ask you nine, about that. Yeah. Title IX sexual harassment and non-Title IX sexual harassment. And Title IX sexual harassment cases got more due process protections. So if you did engage in harassment that was severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive, you got a live hearing with cross-examination and everything like that. But schools didn't, you know, I think what we all hoped was that schools would change their definition of sexual harassment to match the Davis standard. But that isn't what happened. What happened was that schools had this Title IX sexual harassment, and then they still kept the more expansive definitions of sexual harassment. They just called it non-Title IX sexual harassment, and they rooted those complaints through um a lesser process that offered few due or due pro fewer due process protections. Um, and so what was really ironic was that you had schools essentially arguing that things that were quite severe were not severe at all because they wanted to root them through these less protective procedures. So you had this sort of ridiculous system set up. So, so just so I clarify um, this, essentially if they didn't if they thought that what the student is being accused of didn't meet the standard to find them guilty for that, they would just define down the standard and put them through a separate process that made it easier. Well, so they would have two definitions of sexual harassment. They'd have Title IX sexual harassment and non-Title IX sexual harassment. And if they, if they decided if your if your conduct, for example, if it was an accusation of a physical sexual assault, right, if it met the, the standard for Title IX sexual harassment, then you got the Title IX process that the, the regulations mandated. But if it was less than that, it wasn't that they said, oh, no, this isn't sexual harassment at all because it's not severe, pervasive and objectively offensive. What they said was, no, no, this is non-Title IX sexual harassment. So here you go with your process that doesn't have all of these due process protections. Um, so from a practical standpoint, kind of the unify what these regulations do in some ways is, is unify the way most schools define sexual harassment with the way the federal government defines it. Now, I'm not saying that's okay because it is deeply problematic for the federal government to define sexual harassment in a way that the Supreme Court has said threatens protected speech. And, you know, look, I do a lot of sexual misconduct and sexual harassment cases. I also handle quite a lot of uh, allegations of racial harassment and things like that. And the the watered down definitions, the, the definitions that are used in, in that context create a tremendous number of free speech problems. So I fully agree with Robert that we are going to see um, this definition. Well, we are going to continue to see the way schools define both sexual and racial harassment used to threaten protected speech. Um, 
So I hope that that answers your question. Yeah, it, do, it well, does. Part of, the fun, it, part of the fun of dealing with people who have very little accountability is they always find a way to do the things they want to do, <laughs> regardless of what the rules say. And so, you know, there's a certain, I mean, it's important that 2020 regulations were important, but the fact is um, if you're going to continue to have uh, an environment where there is a frankly, in, in many places, an almost total lack of accountability for decision making on behalf of, um, you know, college administrators, they're going to find some way around uh, the, um, you know, in, they're going to find some way around the rules in order to do what they want to do. Um, and I, I think it will take uh, some more working to figure out how to deliver that accountability to them. Well, well, Sam, so were the punishments or the potential punishments for Title IX sexual misconduct and non-Title IX sexual misconduct the same? Or if it was non-Title IX, would the punishments be lesser? Oh, no. They were the same. Oh. <laughs> um, I mean, look, I actually had to argue. And if I can be, I mean, look, this is a podcast about Title IX. So presumably it is okay to discuss sex-related allegations on a podcast. I had to actually make the argument to a school, which the school, you know, rejected. I had a school try to argue that an allegation, which, you know, it's a complicated case, it was a false allegation, but an allegation that a professor had masturbated in front of a student was not, I had to make the argument that the school said, oh, well, that's not severe and pervasive because it's just, it was one time, it wasn't pervasive. Um, I had to make the argument that that was sexual, that that should be classified as Title IX sexual harassment, whereas the school was saying, no, no, that was non-Title IX sexual harassment. And the professor was still fired, but you know he had no due process. He was fired with no due process as opposed to being able to have due process where he would have actually been able to meaningfully um, you know, defend himself against the allegations. So the schools so, are gonna do know, anything they can to get it into that other process, which just correct. makes their whole lives anything easier. Anything they can, to get it into that bucket. So in some ways, you know, and and listen, I mean, we're going to be talking more about the regulations, the regular, the new proposed regulations are deeply problematic, but in some ways, to the extent that they require some more procedure than what schools are requiring in their non-Title IX sexual harassment processes, you know, the fact that they've expanded this definition is actually going to ensure that schools can't quite do the outrageous uh, two-track thing that they've been doing. The problem is that the regulations, because they allow schools to go back to things like single investigator, we know from having observed these two-track processes that that's exactly what schools are going to do. So some people, and I don't know if I'm, you know, you can stop, you know what, I'll, I'll come back to this because Casey hasn't had a chance to say anything yet. So I, I want to get his opinion on the stuff you're asking about now, and then we'll get back into this two-track thing later. Uh, of course. Yeah, I was going to ask you, Casey, is that your sense as well? One of the things that I noticed in the regulations is that it kind of gestures at some of the things that the 2020 regulation does, but doesn't require them. It just lets the school make the choice as to whether they want to implement them. And of course, a right that is not guaranteed isn't a right, uh, and schools as uh, Sam alluded to, are going to take the easier option whenever given the opportunity. So do you see that as well? What is your general takeaway from the regulations? Right. I, I think that's absolutely correct. And you know, to me, the any chance that that 
Biden, who, of course, was deeply committed to a one-sided Title IX process when he was Obama's vice president, might uh, you know, reach the conclusion, look, we have so many other problems in the country, we're going to put this on hold, that that was out the window as soon as Catherine Lehman was nominated to, to head OCR. So Lehman had run OCR during Obama's- and That's the Office for Civil there, Rights of the Department of rights, Education. Yeah. Which, which presides over Title IX and-, and the, whoever was going to be OCR head would have chief responsibility for designing the uh, the regulations. And Layman is the is sort of the federal bureaucrat who is most passionately committed to a one sided process in in this area. So we knew exactly what Layman was going to was going to get. And this, in effect, is a return to the to the Obama Layman strategy of 2013 uh, through th- 2016 to set out these kind of vague terms where universities, for instance, during the Obama second term, universities were not prohibited from allowing cross-examination. They were just strongly discouraged from allowing it. And Layman knew that universities wouldn't do it voluntarily. And so this is the, the whole thrust of the regulations that have been proposed is to return as many universities as possible to a single investigator system where you have one person who who interviews the the parties always outside of the presence of the other parties so the accused student has no idea what's being said and then that same person who's a title nine officer or is someone hired by the title nine officer so there's always a conflict of interest here that same person makes the decision now the regulations don't require that but there are a bunch of ways within the regulations where schools are given a choice and and laymen can be pretty confident that schools in this environment are going to choose the single investigator model for a variety of reasons i mean first because schools in general you know, are committed to a kind of one-sided view in in this area, but partially just because it's easier. I mean, I'll, I'll give one example from from the regulations, which which is a minor one, but I think is particularly pernicious. So the the, the regulations give schools the choice between having a live hearing or using a single investigator model. If they choose to have a live hearing, they have to record that live hearing and provide the accused student with a copy of that audio or a copy of the transcript. If they choose the single investigator model, which again is a model where the accused student doesn't hear any of the testimony that's against him, they don't have to provide an audio or a transcript. Now, this, of course, makes it easier for the schools to do a single investigator model. But if you were designing procedures where you're going to say, all right, we're going to make we're going to require audio in only a live hearing or a single investigator model. It's much more important in the single investigator model because in the live hearing, at least the student does hear what's being said. He can take notes. His advisor can take notes. So there are a bunch of these kind of little elements of the um, uh, of, of of the regulations where where OCR is is encouraging schools to go to the single investigator model, and Layman is well aware that schools are going to embrace that encouragement. Now, Casey, you have spent a lot of time tracking litigation surrounding Title IX, especially after the 2011 Dear Colleague letter, which put in place a lot of these practices or put a thumb on the scale of these practices, I should say. What are you seeing in the courts now? And what were you seeing prior to the 2020 regulations? So, so at the, you know, there, there's both state and federal um, uh, decisions here. The federal decisions are more important because they're nationwide and they're easier to incorporate in the uh, in the regulations. And I think there have been kind of two area, two very broad areas where we've seen um, federal actions. The the first are due process slash fairness. You know, the fairness issues apply to to private schools, due process, to to public, but basically the issues here are the same. So these and are students it, going through the going through Title IX disciplinary process who 
find a deficit in the process of some sort, their constitutional or statutory rights are violated, their contractual rights with the school are violated, and so they file a lawsuit. They file a lawsuit claiming procedural unfairness. And there are there are a variety of issues that come in these cases, but the, the key one in the litigation has been the issue of a denying of, of a live hearing and the denial of cross-examination. And, and courts have been divided on cross-examination. They really have not been much divided on live hearing. I mean, there are very few federal courts who have said, you know, we think the single investigator model is is the way to go. You know, every federal court hasn't followed the the, the, the approach of my favorite judge on this issue, Dennis Saylor, who's a judge in, in Massachusetts, uh, who, who compared this to Salem in 1692. Um, but the but the Saylor principle, I think, kind of, uh, you know, sort of, it, 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 it general, so, so as a general matter, courts have, have, have been requiring schools in this area to, to sort of say, look, you know, you have to provide some minimum amount of, of procedural fairness. And then the other area, and here the the difference between layman one and layman two is huge, have been Title IX claims. So where an accused student is claiming that elements of the process or elements of the university behavior is so unfair that it amounts to gender bias in violation of Title IX against the male student, the accusing student, rather than the, the, the accused. When layman last involved herself in this issue, which was in 2014. The accused student instead of the accuser, right? The accused student instead of the accuser, precisely. So basically, these Title IX cases are saying this is discrimination against men because the school is treating the accused student so unfairly. Generally, when we think of a Title IX lawsuit, we think of the accuser saying, I've been raped and the university has, has ignored it. When Lehman issued her 2014 guidance under uh, under Obama, there had been two um, favorable decisions for accused students claiming a Title IX violation against them and accused male students. As of today, there have been 80. So this is an enormous shift in uh, in the law. And the DeVos regulations recognize this. They included a specific provision. For those of you who want to look it up, Section 106.45a which said that schools can violate Title IX by mistreating both the accuser and the accused students. And that provision was removed in its entirety from the proposed regulations on on grounds that it is redundant to uh, include uh, uh, this, this provision. And there's just no way that you can look at the development of the law in this area. We've gone from, again, two to 80 decisions and say that this is something that OCR should not concern itself with. It's, it's, it's gone because Lehman doesn't want to, to concern herself with. Well, how, how many of these issues, such as the right to a live hearing or the right to cross-examination, are going to be resolved by the courts rather than rulemaking from the Department of Education, right? I mean, how, and, and is this is an issue? I know there's, what, a circuit split, right, uh, on the cross-examination issue, is this something that yeah. might get up to the Supreme Court at some point? I remember Ruth Bader Ginsburg, before she passed away, kind of blasting uh, kangaroo courts in the Title IX ca- context. She's, of course, no longer on the court, but it seems like justices are paying attention, right? She's talking about it on panel she was appearing on. Uh, my, my favorite judge on this, uh, uh, Judge Thapar in the Sixth Circuit, in um, his opinion, said that um, it 
uh, a recent circuit opinion uh, said that uh, cross they couldn't deny cross-examination um, constitutionally where the credibility of the testimony was at issue. And I, I, I love Judge Thapar also happened to go to my high school, although before I was there. So uh, that was why I'll, I'll put in a plug for him. Um, but, I, you know, that flies right in the face of this. Um, and there's another um, decision out of the 11th Circuit. Um, and this goes back to the Davis thing. We can, you know, if we want to get back to that, but in Speech First uh, versus Cartwright, which is an April uh, of this year decision uh, that took a, uh, that looked at, I think it was UCF's um, sexual harassment code, University of Central Florida sexual harassment code, which which had a definition that sounds a whole lot like arguably, you know, the same or, you know, substantially identical to uh, the one that is now uh, being enshrined in these uh, proposed regulations and shot it down uh, completely saying it was too vague and overbroad. So I think we're headed for some collision courses. Obviously, it's all, you know, the Supreme Court doesn't take that many cases. So it could take a long time to get there. You never know whether it'll get there. But I think circuit splits are sure to develop. And, you know, frankly, just, you know, given the environment, I think the abuses will, you know, probably reach a level uh, where the Supreme Court is going to have to take it up. And, um, you know, I think we will uh, see that, you know, I wouldn't say sooner rather than later, but I'd be surprised if it were 10 years down the road, you know. Right. I kind of expect that we will start to see the number of cases being filed around these issues rise again the way that we did after um, 2011, because really what the regulations do by giving schools kind of free reign is they are kicking this issue back to the courts. Right. And in fact, they authorize I mean, they from a from a constitutional standpoint, they cannot actually authorize, but the regulations ostensibly okay schools to adopt procedures that in many jurisdictions have been ruled um, explicitly unconstitutional. And even to the extent, I mean, you know, the Sixth Circuit obviously have said you need a live hearing with cross-examination, you know, done you know, not through the hearing officer, but even the First Circuit that has adopted kind of a a lesser standard for cross-examination has said some cross-examination, you know, through the hearing officer is required. At, and I don't think, you know, the the new regulations actually authorize, quote unquote, they, they say that, you know, credibility assessment is sufficient if both students are allowed to propose questions for the, you know, investigator or decision maker to pose to the other side, including at separate meetings. So, you know, assuming there's a single investigator process, because typically in a single investigator process, there's no hearing, there's no right of confrontation, right? The, the investigator just meets with the parties individually and then puts together an investigative report. So what the regulations say is, well, you know, both parties have to be able to propose questions for the investigator to ask at their individual meetings with, with the other parties, right? I don't think, and Casey, I'm curious if you agree with me, I don't think that would even satisfy the First Circuit standard. Um, for cross-examination, because if it's not in real time, if you don't have the opportunity to propose questions, you know, and I think what the First Circuit was contemplating is questions posed through a hearing officer, but in real time, in response to what a party is saying. You know, if there's no recording of the, the meeting, if there's no, you're not gonna be able to have that kind of real time or even meaningful after the fact response. So the questions that you pose are, are not gonna be able to be based on what that person is actually saying and reactive and are not really going to, you know, seeing how somebody responds to questions that they are asked in a real-time setting 
is much more is a much better way to evaluate their credibility um, than in a one-on-one -on -one interview, which, as Casey said, because it's not required to be recorded, the other the other side's never even going to get to see, right? All they're going to get to see is, you know, how the investigator characterizes it in, in her his or her transcript of the interview. So, you know, I don't think, again, I don't think that would even pass first circuit muster. I think, so I think to the extent that schools are going to go back to trying to adopt that, um, we're going to start to see more litigation around, around these issues again. And ultimately the court is going to decide these things. But Casey, before you respond to what Sam was saying there, can you also explain to our listeners why cross-examination is something that's important in these hearings? I, I think it's it's important for two separate reasons. The 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 first is that this you know, this a sexual assault allegation often involves only two witnesses, um, and so you have a situation where testing the the credibility of both parties, not just the the accused, but also the accuser, becomes uh, becomes critical. And then and and of course this this falls off a, a long you know element of, of, of Supreme Court law dating back to 1970, where the court called cross-examination the, you know, the greatest legal engine uh, in, in history to, to achieve the truth, a, a conclusion, by the way, which the regulations explicitly reject. And they, they argue that the inquisitorial model is a better way of, of achieving the truth. But the second is that the, the Title IX process, and I, you know, to me, one way to think of the Title IX process that's so different than the, than the civil process, is that the university, while in theory a neutral party, is in fact not a neutral party. The university has a stake in all of these cases because a not guilty finding or not responsibility finding can trigger a, a, a media complaint, which is going to cause problems for the university. It can, it can trigger an OCR complaint where the federal federal government will investigate the university for, for discrimination. So the university has lots of subtle ways to, to put the thumb on the scale. And there's just no way that if you don't have a system where the accused student can ask questions you know, through his advisor under the current regulations, or even under the First Circuit standard of through the panel, where, where it could be, be fair. And Sam's point is absolutely correct. I, I had actually pulled out this quote you know, in, in preparing for, for today's event. So this is from that First Circuit opinion. We agree with the position taken by the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, which filed an amicus brief in that case, um, as amicus in support of the appellate, that due process in the university disciplinary setting requires, quote, some opportunity for real-time cross-examination, even if only through a hearing panel. There is no way that you can reconcile that position with a single investigator model. And yet in the regulations, the uh, uh, OCR cites this case, which is called Haydeck versus UMass, as part of the argument for getting rid of cross-examination, which it's just, it's, it's extraordinary. So they take the, the core judgment of this case, which was basically a prudential judgment. The First Circuit said, we're not convinced that, that real cross-examination can be mandated because you're not going to have, we, we can't order schools to have lawyers for these students, and, and we don't trust students to be able to do it themselves. Well, we now have two years of a process where schools all over the country have had either lawyers or advocates for the students. So this prudential concern is no longer longer approached. So I think in terms of thinking about legal challenges, you know, maybe not to the regulations, but to the to the effect of the regulations, this, and there, there are a bunch of similar passages in this First Circuit opinion, are going to be really critical because we've seen lots and lots of courts that have said, we're not going to mandate outright real cross-examination like the Sixth Circuit did in, in this, this Doe versus Bomb case. But we are going to mandate something. There's another line, which is just a great line 
to me, and again, I, um, from this opinion, when a school reserves to itself the right to examine the witnesses, as in a single investigation, well, it also assumes for itself the responsibility to conduct reasonably adequate questioning. And this, again, is something that that OCR basically doesn't want. It wants a system in which the accuser will know going in that she's not going to get asked tough questions because Lehman and and Biden and the, the people sort of around them believe that that's the kind of system that will trigger more reporting. It's a it's a fundamentally unfair approach, and it's one that that lots and lots of courts have ex, have expressed uh, skepticism about. Yeah, and, and remember, you know, Nico, people don't go into the business of Title Line investigating unless they have an activist mindset, right? They are, and and look, even if they are doing their very best, and I think a lot of them probably are, even if they are doing their very best to try to get to the truth of things as they see it, there is, as we've seen in so many institutions now, there is a groupthink problem that happens there. And, and OCR, frankly, is part of that group um, you know, to some extent, there's a revolving door between who serves as these Title IX investigators and the people who, you know, serve in OCR in various administrations. But you have people who are looking for there being a problem because they want to get rid of the problem. And that's like we purposely design, you know, a thousand years. I've said this, but a thousand years of Anglo-American jurisprudence have taught us that that's the exact people you don't want doing the judge. You don't want them being judge dread, judge, jury and execution are the ones who are looking for a problem. You have the prosecutors who are looking for a problem, but then you limit that with fact finders and judges who have a different set of interests. And this single investigator has, you know, when they're a Title IX person who does this, they're not some random, you know, person who's who's plucked out of the ether to do that. They're people who are interested in finding those problems. And so you're likely to find them. And that's something that there's been, no, as far as I can discern, there's been no wrestling with that um, on, on part of the people who are in this, in this field. Go ahead, Sam. Well, what I was going to say is I, I want to also kind of take a step back here, you know, I think part of the reason that the regulations uh, don't wrestle with this, as Robert said, is that there's really, if we take a step back, right, Title IX is a law that prohibits sex discrimination in federally funded education programs. It is through a series of, of administrative and court decisions that sex discrimination has come to include peer-on-peer -peer sexual harassment, including sexual misconduct, which is to say that courts and the, the Office for Civil Rights have found that if a school is deliberately indifferent to reports that students are harassing other students, that this could actually amount to the school discriminating, right? But there's a real disconnect. You know, the, the regulations talk about ending sex discrimination, right, which is the purpose of Title IX, obviously. But there's a, a sort of a fundamental disconnect between, you know, the, the discussion of sex discrimination and the reality of what happens when a school tries and finds a student responsible for sexual misconduct, right? Because to the, to the person, to the graduate admissions committee, to the employer, sexual misconduct does not sound like sex discrimination. It sounds like criminal behavior. And so you have school, you, you know, these new regulations sort of very much move back towards this idea of, oh, listen, like we're just trying to find out whether discrimination happened. And so, you know, this is how we need to, to conduct our processes and really don't 
as to, to borrow Robert's phrase, wrestle with wrestle with the fact that, you know, through this series of administrative and court decisions, schools have essentially been deputized into running what really are these kind of quasi-judicial proceedings that 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 result in findings that have an impact far different from, uh, you know, did this school discriminate on the basis of sex? And I think there's just, there's a real disconnect there. Um, and I think the reason, you know, it, it's understandable that schools don't want to be running courtrooms, right? It's not easy. I have been, you know, I, I just recently had a hearing at a school that had what I would say the, were the most robust protections, sort of the most robust compliance with the Title IX regulations that I've that I have yet to see in my private practice. And, you know, it it's a lot. It is clearly a significant administrative burden on the school to do this. Like I saw kind of what went into, you know, the school providing what I would call a very fair process. Um, and it's a lot. So I understand why schools are going to want to take an easier path, but it does not, that easier path just isn't consistent with the reality of what it means to find someone responsible for sexual misconduct in a way that is going to then follow them for the rest of their lives. And I think the 2020 regulations grappled with that reality and incorporated that reality into um, the way these Title IX cases are handled. And I think the new regulations, to the extent that they allow schools to adopt sort of really processes that are just really inadequate to making this kind of determination in a fair way, uh, they just sort of put their you know head in the sand about that again. This is where you get the whole business uh, where if you've you know, try, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you know, and, and you have somebody who doesn't really know much about this, try asking what's what they think, like what my dad or what my cousins, I was just a family unit, think about when somebody is raped on campus when something like that. They're always like, well, why don't they just call the cops and have the cops do it? And that is, you know, and the reason is, is because in the end, like there, there is a real, like the title nine apparatus treats rape and sexual assault as just sort of the very you know, you know, the extreme end of a spectrum that starts with saying mean, you know, telling mean jokes, um, like sexist jokes. And the fact is most people's intuition and the law as well does not treat it that way. It really is two different kinds of things. And I, and Sam, I'm so glad you made that point because I think it can't be made often enough to try to explain why this whole area seems so screwed up. You know, I was going to ask that, and I'm glad you brought it up, Sam, because I, too, talk with my friends and family who don't live and breathe this. And I, I imagine there's a certain subset of our podcast listenership who are very confused by this conversation, and I apologize, but it's an important issue for expression and due process on campus. But they just say, so someone's being accused of rape? Why aren't they calling the police? Like, why are schools setting up these quasi-judicial processes to determine if someone was raped? Why? And Casey, you wrote a whole book and had a whole blog about the Duke lacrosse case, which I'm assuming, and I'm not, I might not be remembering it correctly, happened, was litigated or was uh, addressed in the courts because it involved, it didn't involve a student, right? A st student wasn't alleging rape. It was um, someone from off campus. But if it was a student, right, it would have gone through this sort of process, right? And the, the, uh, outcome might have not been the same because you wouldn't have had the rules of evidence. You wouldn't have had all the processes to get to the truth that you do have in the criminal process. Right. One of the great ironies of the Duke lacrosse case, which was 2006, so it predates the Obama changes uh, by five years, 
if if the Duke lacrosse case had occurred five years later, there would have been a Title IX claim. There, there is nothing in, in Title IX, as it was interpreted by the Obama administration, that forbade allegations from non-students. And so there would have been strong pressure at Duke to file charges against these these guys. They certainly would have been found guilty and expelled. Um, and they would have been found guilty and expelled. The lacrosse case began in March of 2006. They would have been out by the end of the, the spring 2006 semester. These processes then worked, worked very, very quickly. And the, the lacrosse case was how I got into this, this issue. And it's a great example of why procedural fairness is so important. You know, Mike Knifelong, who was the district attorney in that case, was effectively the single investigator. He took over the police investigation. He also corrupted the court process. He withheld evidence. And, you know, he's a classic example of and he and he believed the accuser. He never talked to the accuser about her story, but he believed her uh, because he was inclined to believe her. He had a lot of reasons to want to believe her. It was politically advantageous to him. It was financially advantageous to him to uh, to believe. And so I think for, for listeners who might be confused about, oh, what is a single investigator and why does this process work? Well, cross case now was a while ago. It was you know sixteen years ago. Um, but but lots of people do I think vaguely remember Mike Knifelong, and try to imagine yourself if you were accused, would you feel comfortable having your fate as a college student decided by Mike Knifelong? And I think most people would would not be, for reasons that Knifelong himself demonstrated in that in that case. I want to ask. We've probably got time for two more questions here. One is who has supremacy in what colleges and universities should be doing here, right? Um, is it the Department of Education or is it the Sixth Circuit, for example, with its cross-examination ruling? Is it the Department of Education or is it Louisiana state law? They just passed a law earlier this month that we were involved in helping to get past that codified uh, certain due process protections and codified, for example, the Davis standard. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know <laughs> what the who we should look to if we're a college administrator to guide how we um, set up our processes to be in compliance with the law. But do any of you have insight into that? And I believe the regulations brought it up a little bit. It's it's basically court cases, then federal um, legislation, then federal regulations, then probably state legislation in court cases and then universities. Um, so the Department of Education fits in around the federal. Well, nowadays, that they're actually trying to do legitimate regulations, they fit in at the federal regulation stage. You know, they didn't actually do that until uh, 2020 with the Trump administration. They were just doing all of this through letters and browbeating and, you know, vague threats uh, and things like that. And so that's the dear, co- dear 2011 Dear Colleague letter, right? Exactly, the Dear Colleague letter. So, um, you know, to the extent, so for instance, where um, like if Louisiana has a law now, which they do, uh, thanks in, in, you know, in, in part to uh, FIRE's work um, that codifies certain protections and those are still optional in the federal regulations, that means they're not going to be optional at Louisiana public schools, right? So if, if they're still allowed for in the regulations, let's say, you know, Louisiana says you have to be able to do cross-examination. The federal regs say, well, you can or you can't. That means Louisiana, you have to, right? But if federal regulation says you can't do X um, and Louisiana says you have to do X, the federal regulation has, um, 
superiority there. Now that doesn't mean, you know, and I think we'll see um, continued litigation from um, uh, attorneys general in states that are interested in defending uh, their own laws on that. Um, and then, you know, even a district court case um, is superior to the federal regulation. So for instance, if a district says, no, sorry, in this area, you have to have cross-examination or whatever it is. And the regulations say, no, you're that in within that district, you're required to follow the district court. Same with a circuit. And of course the Supreme court overrules all of that. But it's a good point. I mean, Sam had said a while ago that, you know, title nine is 50 years old and, there was no idea of hostile environment sexual harassment when it was passed. I mean, this is all built on, there really isn't, I mean, uh, VAWA, the Violence Against Women Act, touches on on some of these things. Um, it actually, in some ways, delivers more protections for um, uh, sexual crimes of sexual violence, which is not exactly the same as sexual misconduct, obviously. Um, but, you know, for the most part, there isn't a lot of federal law on the, like federal legislation on it. The law is almost all regulatory and in courts. Right. And look, to some degree, oh, I'm sorry, uh, we have lawn people outside and there's probably loud lawnmower sounds. It's okay. Now, but, we um, can't hear them, or at least I can't. Um, You know, look, to some degree, I think, you, you know, the, the existence of this concept of hostile environment harassment, right? I, I understand where it comes from. I mean, I, I don't think it's unreasonable, for example, to say that if you're in, you know, if you're in chemistry, if you're in chemistry class and your neighbor is exposing himself to you during class and you say to your teacher and your principal, uh, you know, hey, I can't concentrate in class because my, you know, my seatmate is repeatedly exposing himself to me and the administration's reaction is, ah, boys will be boys, right? I mean, I think that's kind of the where the idea of hostile environment harassment originally came from, which is that if you are trying to report that you are being harassed in the educational setting in a way that's, you know, preventing you from um, from taking advantage of it, and the administration's response is boys will be boys or what have you, right, that, that there is some responsibility on the part of the schools. But so I don't a hundred, I don't entirely disagree with the, the concept, but the, you know, the standards that the schools have set, you know, that, I mean, that, sorry, not the schools, that the courts have set, that the Supreme Court has set, that, you know, what that requires is deliberate indifference to known harassment that is so severe and pervasive and objectively offensive. You know, that provides a real backstop against the kind of abuses that we see now, right? So I don't, you know, I don't want to, suggest that I don't think schools have some responsibility for this stuff, but I think the way it's been interpreted has just opened up a, a world of, um, you know, dysfunction that it's it's proving very hard to come back from. And I think what we're going to see now, again, is that, that it's going to come back to the courts because, you know, back to your sort of question about supremacy, the Constitution is the law of the land, and the Constitution obviously is interpreted by our federal courts. So for students at public universities who have due process rights, right, there is going to be some floor on what universities can do um, consistent with those rights. At private schools, you know, where it's contractual and where, you know, it's a question of are there processes violating Title IX, and, and a lot of courts have held that processes that discriminate against uh, accused students rather than men outright um, don't violate Title IX, it's going to be much tougher. I mean, I think, you know, this is, again, going to be one of these areas where, you know, I, I often say when it comes to both free speech and due process, in public school, you have rights. You know, as an attorney in private practice, I'm much happier when someone comes to me with a case from a public school than from a private school. 
I mean, you know, there are options at private schools. Obviously, I have cases at private schools. You know, there have been successful lawsuits against private schools for contractual violations and then Title IX violations stemming from these things. But but rights matter. Constitutional rights matter. And I think that, um, you know, the, these new regulations, assuming that they are enacted as, as proposed, um, are going to be yet another reminder of that. I think that's a great place to end. Rights matter. But I do want to also pick up on the thread that you were spinning there. What are the next steps, right? It's So these regulations were proposed on June 23rd, which I should have mentioned at the top was the 50th anniversary of Title IX. Now they go through a notice and comment period, right, Robert? And will presumably at the out, end of that period be changed or not changed and then go into effect. They, they appear to be giving, although they often extend these, the minimum number of days for notice and comment, which is 60 days uh, to notice and comment, which, by the way, the Trump administration, I believe, did give significantly longer than that. So we'll see. Um, and then they are required to um, deal with all of the substantive comments, although they can do it in groups. Um, and then they will issue the final regulations. So, um, you know, it'd be very surprising if it were fewer than six months away um that would be like a complete headlong rush if it were going to be six months i think uh just given all the stuff they're likely to have to do um and the speed the government works but um theoretically it could be you know 60 days another 60 days to answer it and bang the regulations are out but that would be super quick that would be fast historically yeah and it's open to the public right to provide comment so it is anybody can put in a comment we welcome you to do that yeah and we would appreciate it so again, rights matter, as Sam said. Uh, unfortunately, some of the rights that students had under the previous framework could be rolled back if these proposed regulations go into effect as written. But time will tell, and we'll keep you all updated. Casey, Sam, Robert, I appreciate you all taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and edited by my colleague, Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is linked in the show notes. Most of our episodes, including this one, appear on that channel. You can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram by searching for the handle Free Speech Talk. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. And leave us a email if you have any feedback for the show. We take those at so to speak at the fire.org. I try to respond to every email correspondent. And if you like this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. They do help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, I thank you all again for listening.